Uh, that song is still fairly new to us. We've sung it for a little while now, but I love, I think it's the last or the second last verse of that song. Beneath the cross of Jesus, the path before the crown, we follow in his footsteps where promised hope is found. How great the joy before us. Those last words especially echo Hebrews 12, where it talks about Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. And we are to look to him and to run with endurance the race that is set before us. But those words that talk about the cross as being the path that Jesus had to walk before he could receive the crown, uh, those words have their echoes in Hebrews 2, which is where we are going to go today. So again, if you've got your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to Hebrews chapter 2. And we're going to be looking at verses 5 to 18 today. But before we do that, I wanted to read that for us and have you follow along as I read. And then once we're done, I just encourage you to keep your Bibles open there. It'll help you as we walk through this passage together. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him. You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of his people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. As far as the reading of God's word. One of the difficult stages that all parents have to go through is is that day when your child is ashamed to be seen with you. If you're a parent, you've likely experienced this. It hits some of us when they politely ask us not to kiss them on the cheek when we see them off. For others, it's the day when they get asked to be dropped off a block away from school so that their friends don't associate you with them. Now, some parents take that harder than others, rightly so. Then there are some parents who actually get a rise out of embarrassing their children 
and who will try to think of new and creative ways to do exactly that. I'm not sure who that would be. But this kind of thing is almost commonplace in children. It's not only parents, but older siblings sometimes hit a stage when they're embarrassed to have their younger siblings around, especially when they're with their friends. They just don't want those younger brothers or sisters hanging around with them. And all of that is somewhat natural and understandable. Down deep, though, we know that they love their parents and they love their siblings. But this is just all part of finding their way in the world, of becoming independent, of of growing up. As parents, we get a little bit sentimental about that because even though we all want our children to grow and we all want them to become independent, there's part of us that, that just doesn't like it. It's a sign that things aren't what they used to be and that our relationship with them is changing. But with that in mind, I, I'm not sure that there's a more touching and intimate, yet um, mind-blowing and shocking statement than the one that I just read there in verse 11, which, also, which I also made the title of this sermon. He, that is Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brothers. He is not ashamed to call them brothers. If there should be any shame in being associated with someone, if there's anyone who has uh, every right to be embarrassed to be seen with someone, it should be the perfect Son of God with rebellious sinners. Yet the Son of God, this says, is not ashamed to call them brothers. In fact, it says he's honored to be associated with them. Rather than be embarrassed, verse 12 says... I'll tell your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Well, that's really the furthest thing from shame. He, he actually celebrates his association with redeemed sinners. And that makes us ask, why? How could that be so? Well, that's what this section is all about. It's going to tell us why Jesus Christ is not ashamed to consider us part of his family, and then how that came to be. This is all part of um, what we've called a sermon, which is, this, this turns out now to be a letter, but it was originally a sermon that was preached to a community uh, of people, uh, and it's, we've called it Hebrews, which is extolling here the virtues and the excellencies of the superiority of Jesus Christ. It's just telling us over and over again how great he is how excellent he is, how, how he is superior to all things. In the last part of chapter 1, we found out that Jesus is better than, than angels. And at the beginning of chapter 2, last week, we talked about this warning uh, that was there not to drift away from Jesus and, and away from the gospel. But starting in verse 5, he picks up talking again about how Jesus is better than angels. It seems like there were a couple of things that were making these people that, he, they're, that he's writing to, that he's talking to, that was making them, and, and, and they were mostly Jewish Christians, which we can tell by the name of the book. Was, there was a few things that was making them wonder about Christ's supremacy as the Son of God. And one of them was the fact that the Son of God was a man. It was his incarnation. It was his, his coming to earth as one of us that made them wonder, you know, could he really be so great? So the writer has to show them that even though he came as a man, uh, he's even better than angels. But the other thing that made them wonder 
is that not only was he a man, but he suffered. And not only did he suffer, but he died. If Jesus was the very Son of God, how could that happen? And the idea that a Messiah could die, that the Jewish Messiah could die, was actually offensive to them, to Jews especially. They, they didn't have a category for a suffering Messiah. Even though you say all, a lot of the Old Testament texts, especially in Isaiah uh, 40 and on, talk about a suffering servant, but they didn't make that connection. And so the writer here is out to prove that in reality, the fact that he suffered was actually part of God's purpose in sending the Son. And the fact that he suffered is the exact thing that makes him superior, the exact thing that makes him great. But there was also a practical part of this thing for the Hebrew community in showing them that Jesus was sufficient, that Jesus was enough for them. And that is that they were a suffering community. That's the context in which this is written in, especially those of them that had become Christians. There was a lot of persecution going on, or at least a threat of persecution that they were living under. And, and that thing, this sort of threat, made them go in two directions. Either they would uh, get discouraged, or they would just bail. They, they might not want to have any part of this, this Christian thing if there was going to be persecution and suffering. And so here comes this message, this letter saying, no, no, don't get discouraged. Don't bail. Jesus is enough. In fact, when you look to Jesus, you'll find that you can walk through whatever trial or, or temptation that you're facing, precisely because he has already walked through those kinds of things and to the nth degree. And because of that, he'll walk through this with you. That's what this section is all about. But it comes to us through all these amazing truths about Jesus, especially as it concerns his relationship to us. Some of these are, frankly, just overwhelming to consider. But we want to do just that as we go through chapter 2 from verse 5 to the end. The writer is going to talk in verses 5 to 9 about how the incarnation, the fact that Jesus came as a man, does not cancel out Christ's supremacy over all things. And then in verses 10 to 18, how his suffering doesn't cancel out or compromise Christ's supremacy over all things. In fact, those very things were all part and parcel of God the Father's plans and purposes in rescuing and and in securing salvation for his people. And so in that first section, in verses 5 to 9, he picks up the comparison of the Son with angels that he started back in chapter 1. And the comparison here focuses on the authority and the rule of angels compared to the Son. And it makes a comparison of the, of the present reality and the future reality. You see that there right in verse 5. Now it was not to angels that God, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, the future of which we are speaking. And then he quotes from Psalm 8. Uh, really a beautiful psalm, which is actually not talking about Jesus, but talking, uh, talking there about us, about humankind. And so look again at verse 6. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, and, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet talking there about us. That's what the psalmist is, is thanking God for the dominion that he has given them. What is man that you are mindful 
of him. He's making the point that God designed that we have a more privileged position than angels. Never mind that his son has a more privileged position. That, that was God's design. But we, of course, messed it up when we sinned. So there are some pretty amazing concepts there. This whole idea of what is man that you are mindful of him. And then a parallel, parallel thought to sort of round out that poem. What is the son of man that you care for him? Whatever could there be in us that would make us to be so much in the mind of God that he would even think to care about us? We didn't do anything to deserve that kind of attention. And yet he has crowned us with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under our feet. That, uh, it's really talking about creation there and the fact that he gave us as to be rulers and to have dominion. It's going way back to Genesis chapter 1. And then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Unlike anything else he created, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That's the thing, way things were in the beginning. God put everything in subjection under our feet. But we ruined it by sinning. Our very first great-great-great-great-great-grandparents sinned. And we follow in their footsteps. We, we can't keep God's rules, just like Adam and Eve couldn't. And the punishment for disobedience in the garden was, remember, eat of the tree and you will surely, what? Die. That punishment gets passed all the way down to us, too. And so at the end of verse 8, it says, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Sin clouds our sight. The writer is still thinking of us as humans there. and He says, because of our sin, we can't see things the way God created them to be. Our sin has blinded us to that reality. And so what do we see? What, what do we experience? We see hardship. We only see strife. We see suffering. Even though we can exercise dominion over the land and, and the animals in part, we would all admit that it's not easy. And all of that can lead to discouragement, unless we recognize that this is for a little while. God has greater purposes for us. This past creation reality will again be a future reality. And that can only happen through the Son of God. There's the bridge from the present to the future. And so the writer to Hebrews actually takes those Psalm 8 realities and applies them to Jesus. You see that transition already there at the end of verse 8, but especially in verse 9. But we see him, and now it's talking about Christ, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. So he applies the same truths now to Christ, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So now, instead of that truth being applied to humanity, it gets applied to Jesus. He was a little while lower than the angels. When is that? Well, that's when he came. His life on earth. That's his incarnation. 
We could say that this is talking about his condescension of coming down from heaven to earth. It's, it's talking about his humiliation where God became one of us. But it's not really humiliation if we think of this as God the Son joyfully fulfilling uh, the perfect plan and the perfect purpose of God the Father. But verse 9 sort of sets all of this into motion. These amazingly glorious realities of what God does for his people through Jesus. It's just one thing after another here. Each one of which would make us stop and worship. But don't miss the point of this first section. The point is to show that the incarnation of Jesus, the fact that he was for a little while lower than the angels, does not lower his superiority, his rank, his, his position. In fact, it, it heightens his supremacy and his sufficiency, doesn't it? Look what it says there in verse 9. He is crowned with glory and honor. Why? How? Because of the suffering of death. That's strange to our human sensibilities, isn't it? He, he, he comes up, he, he, he receives a place of honor because of suffering, the suffering of death. Rather than his suffering and death, though, doing harm to his greatness, his suffering and his death heightens his greatness. Let your mind linger on that last part. Jesus is crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that, here comes the reason, by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Uh, this transitions us into the next section, but, but oh, what, what great truth here, isn't there? And don't get hung, too hung up on this everyone there as talking about the extent of, of the atonement, that it's for everyone, because he's going to qualify all of that in, in, in a number of verses coming up, verse 10, verse 11, verse 12, and so on. He's going to talk there about brothers specifically, sisters. But God had a purpose for Christ's coming, for, for, for Jesus' suffering of death, and it, it highlighted his grace in that he sent Jesus to die to accomplish the salvation of his people. Notice the emphasis on God's grace. This is, this is actually quite profound, maybe even offensive to some. It's saying, if you think about it, that God actually ordained, that God actually planned the death of his son. And he did indeed do that. And he did that, and yet this is not, as some recently have written, that this is cosmic child abuse. It's not. This, is, this pleased the Father to do this. And this heightens and, and exalts Christ and exalts the Father. He, he did it in love because of his love for the Son and in love for his children. It was a self-sacrificing act of salvation. God had a divine purpose in the suffering of his son. It was for his joy and for our joy. And so one application of that for us is that if God had a grand purpose for the suffering of his son, then when we have trials, when, when we happen to go through a season of suffering, and if you haven't, you will, we should see that God has a purpose for all of that as well. It's not just happenstance. It's, it's, it's not that God has abandoned us. Instead, God ultimately means this, purposes it, for our joy and for his glory. Well, having now been introduced to the suffering and death of Jesus, let's go on to those next verses. Just remember again that the point of verses 5 to 9 was that the greatness of Jesus was not compromised by his coming as a man. And now he's going to make the point that the greatness of Jesus is not compromised at all by his suffering and his death. 
We could spend a lot of time on every part of this, but I'm just hoping that this morning that, that letting these come at us in a wave, sort of one after the other, will help us feel the, the full force of how amazing Jesus is for us and for how we should always exalt Jesus and honor Jesus because of his surpassing greatness toward us who believe. We see, first of all, there in verse 10, that it was fitting that God, the one for whom and by whom all things exist, should make the founder of our salvation perfect through suffering. Essentially saying the same thing there as verse 9 and just uh, clarifying it a little bit more. Don't you just love that designation for Jesus, the founder of their salvation? Other translations have that. They struggle with how to translate this Greek word here, but they have the captain of their salvation or the author of their salvation, or the source of their salvation. Some people, or some translations, have the forerunner of their salvation. The word means leader. It means, it's really talking about one that goes in front and and always involves others in, in whatever they're endeavoring to do. Well, the endeavor here is salvation. And the people he involves in his endeavor are his children, those that would follow him. But Jesus goes in the front. He's the founder. He's the forerunner. But look at where he leads. God designed that Jesus would be made perfect through suffering. Like I said before, this whole concept of of God being associated with suffering was offensive and was, was scandalous to the Hebrew mind. But that's exactly how God would accomplish his purpose, perfect plan. It would be through the humiliation and the suffering of his very own son. And notice again that the suffering doesn't lower the reputation of the son. It it heightens it. Jesus is perfected through suffering. Now make make you ask, how can the perfect son be made even more perfect? That would be a good question to ask of this text. Why did he have to be made perfect when he already was perfect? Perfect. And we could spend probably about four weeks on that. But I think this is just a way of encouraging these people that when they suffer, they can know that Jesus doesn't just come beside us or he's not over us or just out there somewhere and say, I know how you feel. No, Jesus encouraged us precisely because he experienced suffering himself. He does know how we feel. He he, he walked through it and he came out the other side, but unlike well-meaning people who will come along when we are suffering or when we suffer loss and and say to us, I know how you feel, when they haven't experienced what you're going through, Jesus actually does know how you feel. He's been there. I think that's what it means when he says that our forerunner was made perfect. He suffered ahead of us. And when we suffer, we can just sort of um, slide in behind the, the founder of our salvation the one who suffered for us. And as we walk through it, we know that he already walked through it and that he is with us walking through it now. This is a great encouragement when we are, as we often are, prone to despair and to get discouraged and to wonder why we're we're going through whatever it is we're we're going through and when we can't seem to find an answer, why? Well, the innocent son, the innocent son went through suffering too. And he was made perfect through it. God's divine purposes were perfected through suffering. 
And so the encouragement is, again, that when we suffer, God will certainly have his purposes for our suffering. If he had grand purposes for his son's suffering, he will definitely have purposes for our suffering. Your suffering is not without purpose in God's sight. Well, the next thing we see here is the amazing solidarity between us and Christ. This is, this is where the whole family image comes in that I was talking to the children about. It, isn't it amazing that Jesus is made out to be our older brother? You can see that kind of family language right through verses 10 to 18. Verse 11, he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Verse 12, and now actually Jesus is actually talking to us through some Old Testament verses here. He says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. Verse 13, I and the children God has given me. Verse 14, the children share in, in flesh and blood with Christ. Verse 16, it calls us the offspring of, of Abraham. Again, family type language. Verse 17, Jesus had to be made like his brothers. And it all gets kind of crazy unbelievable in verse 14. When I just read that Jesus actually took on flesh and blood. He he, he made himself to resemble us. He didn't previously resemble us, but he made himself willingly to look like us. That idea of flesh and blood there points to our weakness and to our frailty. Yet that's what the Son of God, Jesus Christ, took on to himself. He took on the appearance of, of weakness. He shared in flesh and blood. Uh, you know, we are all born flesh and blood. We have no other existence. But the Son existed before he became flesh and blood. He wasn't flesh and blood by nature, yet he willingly became one of us. He, he humbled himself, as Paul says in Philippians. Why? So that he could take our penalty. Remember that God told Adam and Eve, you shall surely die. And as flesh and blood, we are destined to die. Yet Jesus, it says here, partook of flesh and blood. Why? That through his death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. Jesus became our brother in every way. He, he identifies with us totally and completely. At the end of the chapter talks about him being tempted. In chapter 4 says that he was tempted in every way, even as we are, yet was without sin. His suffering, we, the suffering that we experience, he's experienced all of it, as I've said already. And all of this in no way diminishes Jesus. It raises the bar on our, uh, on our adoration and on our worship and our exaltation of the one who is our Savior and the one who is our brother. He is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Amazing. And the last attribute of Jesus that I want us to see here shows up down there in verses 17 and 18. The fact that Jesus is our high priest. Now that whole concept is going to get a lot of attention as we go along in Hebrews. But notice what Jesus does for us in his role as high priest here. The high priest in the Old Testament, uh, this Old Testament that the original audience would have known so well, is the one that offered sacrifices for the sins of his people. And Jesus is going to be the greater and the final high priest because his sacrifice is once and for all, instead of the continual sacrifices that these priests had to offer. But here, Jesus is called a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Again, doesn't this just highlight the supremacy of, of the Son toward us? He is our merciful high priest. He's not just a high priest that, that does what a high priest is supposed to do. He is our merciful 
high priest, merciful to us, faithful to God. He has mercy on our needs. We deserve the wages of sin, which is death, but Jesus is a merciful high priest. He does not treat us as we deserve. He gives us life when we deserve death, and he actually dies in order to procure life for us. He is our merciful high priest, and he is faithful to God through his suffering and and through temptation. And as the final and the better high priest says that he makes propitiation for the sins of the people. That just means, fancy way of saying that he provides the, the satisfactory atonement for us, the, the, the requirement that, that God has for those who would st- be able to stand with him. He, he turns aside God's just wrath against our sin and he removes it from us by himself going up on the altar. That's the cross and becoming the perfect Lamb of God who dies for the sins of his people. He he saves us from God's judgment, the judgment that we deserve. And by doing that, he he satisfies God's justice. And Jesus willingly takes it for us, and he he grants us then forgiveness through the uh, shed blood of Christ, which is sung about this morning. God deals with our sins through Christ, through his Son. And all of that shows us unmistakably that the suffering of Jesus no, in no way cancels out his superiority or decreases his supremacy over all things. His suffering actually serves, again, to affirm his absolute sufficiency and his supremacy. Homer Kent put it this way. He says, to suffer needlessly is foolishness, but to suffer in a noble cause is heroic. Jesus' suffering is exactly what makes him supremely glorious. It's exactly what makes him our hero, the captain of our salvation. Well, we've just sort of sprinted through this rich passage, and we haven't stopped long enough to, to observe and to smell the roses that are on each side of the road. But as we close, I just want to point out two words in this passage that highlight who Jesus is for us. And both of these talk about how we can be united with him and how he takes us with him to where he goes. He actually carries us along. Uh, I think the reason that these jumped out at me in this rich passage is that they imply movement on our part. But only as God sends Jesus to take us to places that we would never be able to go on our own. The first is back in verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory... See the movement there? Look at where God takes us through Jesus. He is bringing with him many sons and daughters to glory. It's that picture of taking us by the hand. Just like in the Old Testament, he took Israel by the hand, away from slavery to Egypt, through the Red Sea, through the desert, and he brings them into the promised land. Here he takes us by the hand, away from slavery to sin, through uh, various kinds of trials and temptations and sufferings. And and he brings us with him to the glory of his presence. God sends Jesus to go down to get us, as it were, so that he can bring us up to himself. He brings many sons to glory. And then down at the beginning of verse 15, it's that same kind of image. It says there that he delivers all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Now, the one thing that we as humans fear the most is death. Because of our sin, we're all destined to death. 
Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. But Jesus delivers us from that fear, from that slavery. We're all still going to die unless we, the First Thessalonians passage I read, unless we are there when God takes us up together with him and meets, we, meet him in, we meet those who have already fallen asleep in the sky. We'll still die, all of us, unless we're in that group. But, but that will have no hold on us. It can't have any hold on us. Why? How? Because through his own death, he destroyed the one who has power over death. That is the devil. Because Jesus on the cross tasted death for us, we no longer need to fear death if we are united with Christ. When we're united with Jesus, he takes us by the hand again and delivers us right through death and into life. Just like he walked through death and came up out of that grave. We are now alive with Christ. We die with him, we live with him. So my Christian brothers and sisters, all of this should encourage you that Jesus is enough for you, whatever circumstances you're in. I'm not sure what kind of deep waters you're going through, but I would encourage you by the fact that you are, if you are a believer, you are latched to Jesus. And he will carry you through. Maybe you're feeling unloved. Well, Jesus is enough. Maybe you're feeling lonely. Jesus is enough. Maybe you're feeling abandoned. Jesus is enough for you. Maybe you feel like you're suffering unjustly. Well, Jesus did too. Very much so. And he is enough for you. If you're not a Christian, I would plead with you to consider Jesus and to turn from your sins and to trust him with your life. If you are not united to Christ, there are some fearful ramifications in these verses, aren't there? But there are also some great realities and just want to encourage you that those can be yours if you repent and put your faith in our, as we sing sometimes, our wonderful, merciful Savior. Let's bow together in prayer. Our great God and our Heavenly Father, the one for whom and by whom all things exist, Lord, we are so grateful for your word to us today. We've just scratched the surface here. Lord, we thank you for speaking through your word. Thank you for speaking through your spirit. We thank you for speaking through your son. Our God, we have come to see again this morning the, the infinite greatness of your son, the one who is crowned with honor and glory because of suffering, the one who is our sanctifier, the one who is the captain of our salvation. One who's not only our savior, but our very brother. The one who destroyed the power of death. The one who uh, took upon himself your cup of wrath for our sins. So unfair it seems to us, but so much an act of great love. And so we thank you this morning for Jesus. May we ever and always worship him aright. And hear this blessing. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And so to God our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen.